So we are in week two of a series titled, The Other 316s. And many of you have probably heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Uh, but there are a lot of other verses, which are chapter 3, verse 16, that are incredibly, incredibly powerful. And so what we're doing over the summer is we're looking at 10 of these different 3.16 verses. So last week, Dylan kicked us off with uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.16 and talked about the peace of God that God wants us to have. Uh, and then I'm going to speak today from Colossians 3.16 and also 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, and then over the next eight weeks, there'll be a different 3.16 verse uh, every week that we look at. And we're going to do something a little bit different this summer, which I'm super excited about, is, uh, is I'm going to give this message here, and then in a couple weeks, I'm going to give it in Taze Valley. And we're going to do a little bit of a swapping between Riverage Charleston and Riverage Taze Valley in terms of speaking. Everybody will kind of bring their best message from a 3.16 verse. So uh, I'm just excited to kind of to do that and to see how that works out this summer. But I'm very excited about what God is going to show us through these 3.16 verses. So let's pray together. God, thanks so much for this morning. Uh, thank you, Lord, just for the message that I'm about to share, just my enthusiasm for it. And God, I thank you for Big Kick and, uh, and the kids that heard about you and the volunteers and the parents that were watching. God, just what an awesome privilege it is for us to be able to have this outreach into the community. And uh, God, I pray that it would be incredibly, incredibly fruitful. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a number of years ago, Stacy and I went to New York City, and we were celebrating our anniversary. And uh, we love going, uh, at least I love going to a big city and riding the subway and all that kind of stuff. And so we stayed at a hotel uh, uh, near Columbus Circle. And uh, here's a map of New York City, the subway system there. And so we got around on the subway wherever we went. And so Columbus Circle is right up there, kind of just south of uh, Central Park. And so we would take the subway wherever we went. And so one night we went to the uh, like theater on the 42nd Street around that area. We got on the subway. The blue line takes us back to our hotel. Well, we get on the subway, and we end up not back at our hotel. It took us a different way. And what I came to realize is that it's not just the color that you have to look at. You have to look at the letter also or the number. So there's an A and a B and a C for the blue line. And we had gotten on the wrong one. Not a big deal. So we got off at a stop uh, and then just had like a maybe a 10-minute walk to our hotel instead of like a two or three-minute walk to our hotel. Well, the next day we went to Rockefeller Center. We saw the Rockettes and their Christmas show and all that kind of stuff. And we got on the blue line again to get back to our hotel. And once again, we get on the wrong train. And so again, not a huge deal, but we ended up, you know, six or eight minutes away, got off a different stop, and then walked to our hotel. Wasn't cold, wasn't rainy, not a big deal. So two days later, we are getting ready to go uh, to fly back home out of JFK. And uh, again, New York City, JFK is way over here on the right. You can see it there. Uh, and you can see that the subway will take us from our, directly from our hotel to JFK. And so we've got like a big suitcase. We've got a little carry-on bag. We go, we get on the subway. We get on the blue line to head out there. And I'm looking at the stops as it goes by. And I realize that once again, we are on the wrong train. I looked at the color and not the letter of the particular train. And so at this point, like we had left plenty of time to get there by subway, which is faster in New York City, but not enough time to go all the way back to our hotel, get on the right train, and go the other way. So we get off at the first stop uh, that we can get off at to try and figure out what to do. And we get out. And have you ever seen a gang movie that's taking place in New York City? 
Like every one of those shots was filmed right at that place. Like we get out, and this is the scariest place. We go, oh goodness, we are not in Kansas anymore, or Charleston, or even Manhattan. I mean, this place was super scary looking. And so we get back on a train going the other way to like a little bit more of a major stop. We go up to street level. And so we're looking for a taxi to get us to the airport. At this point, we're like, how far away from the airport are we going to make it? We're not sure. The stress level is building in Stacy and I. And so there's no taxis there, but there are these like brown and black Lincoln town cars. And so we say, can you give us a ride to the airport? Uh, th- by the way, for you young people, um, uh, Uber did not exist back then or Lyft. So, um, so but anyway, we talked to this guy and they're like, yeah, I'll give you a ride. It's $40. And like, I'm super cheap and $40 is like, oh, the subway was a buck 25, you know. And so, and, but, and so we were on our way to the airport, we're like, how long does it take to the, get to the airport? And every New Yorker will tell you the exact same thing. How long does it take? Depends on traffic, right? So we're like, well, we have a flight to catch. So this guy floors it, and it, now it's getting dangerous. So we get to the airport, and um, we're so late, like we're like barely going to make our flight. So we take both of our pieces of luggage up to the gate. They say, you can keep the small piece stick in the overhead bin, but the big piece of luggage, we need to gate check that. So they just took it from us and put it down below or somewhere, didn't give us the little tag, the bag tag thing. So we arrive back in Charleston, and our bag is not there, right? And so, and we have, to this day, we have never gotten our bag back. So somewhere, there is somebody wearing like a I Love New York t-shirt, a New York Knicks, you know, foam finger, and his wife is wearing my wife's sexy lingerie from our anniversary weekend, Right? <laughs> Don't picture that. But, you know, so, and I was like, oh, and, you know, and all of this was why. Because we couldn't remember, I couldn't remember, to look at the letter and not just the color of the subway system, right? It was such a pain. And so, it, I mean, the stress level was up, $40, lost our suitcase, all of that stuff, because I didn't know what to look for. I didn't look for it, even though I had probably should have figured it out by that point in time. Now, here's the thing. It's one thing to make the mistake there, but it's another thing when those things happen with bigger things in life where we don't know the truth, we don't act on the truth. You know, because the thing is, if I had been a New Yorker, like, I would know that I need to look at the letter and the color of the line. If I had been a New Yorker, I would have followed the subway. I wouldn't have needed the signs because I would know the subway map. It would be deep in my heart because that's how they get around. The same way that you know the streets around your house. You don't have to look at a map. It's just part of you. You know how to get from here to there. A New Yorker wouldn't have made that mistake, but I made that mistake. Stacy and I made that mistake, and it costs us. The first time it costs us about a 10-minute walk, not a big deal. The second time it costs us about an eight-minute walk, not a big deal. The third time it cost us 40 bucks, a ton of stress, and all the luggage stuff that we lost, whatever the cost to replace that was. But again, those are decisions that we made that cost us something. But sometimes in life, we make decisions because we don't have the truth. We don't know the decision to make. We don't have the truth in us. And we make some pretty major decisions where we'd like to go back in time and redo that decision, you know, but we can't. I'd love to go back in time and get on the right train and avoid all that pain. And you probably look around at your life and say, I'd like to go back in time and avoid some of the pain, the bad mistakes that I knew because I didn't follow kind of the truth that I, that I should have known. 
You know, think about this. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever said something to somebody you cared about that was a harsh word or a mean word, and it came out of your mouth, and you couldn't take it back? And it caused problems in the relationship. It caused pain in the relationship, but you couldn't take it back, and it broke that relationship. Maybe it broke it apart, or it took a long time to rebuild that trust. Wouldn't you have loved to have some truth deep in your heart that had kept that from coming out of your mouth? Or how about this? Have you ever had a situation that was a, you got in a financial situation that was just difficult, that was stressful, where you were in over your head because of a decision that you made? Maybe you took out too much loan, too much mortgage on your house, or you bit off more you could chew on a car payment, or you got into a long-term contract of a phone or something like that, and you wish you could get out of it, you go back in time and say, man, I wish I had something in my brain that would told me not to make that foolish decision. Or has anybody ever dated somebody and you look back and you go, why did I do that? Why didn't I figure out on the second date or even the first date that this person was like bad because they pulled me away from my family, they pulled me away from God, or they pulled me away from whatever it is, right? We want to go back in time, but we made these bad decisions because we didn't kind of have the truth in us about what the right way to go was. Or I'll give you one more. Has anybody ever gotten a situation where you were super stressed about something? Just anxiety and worry and stress level was just through the roof about stuff that you couldn't even control. And then eventually it resolved itself and you look back and go, why was I so stressed during that week or that period of time? I didn't need to be. Again, we'd love to go back in time and tell ourselves that truth that we didn't know that would have kept us away from that stress. So here's the big idea for today, and you're going to see it in the New York subway example, but it's this, is the depth of truth determines the speed of obedience. The depth of truth determines the speed of obedience. You see, a New Yorker has the truth about the subway system in his heart, in his mind, or her mind, so to speak, right? But I didn't, and because I didn't have it, I made this mistake. And the same is true about life, that if we have the truths about what God says about life in our hearts, in our brains, it will save us a ton of pain from going the wrong direction. Here's how Paul puts it. This is Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Let the word of God dwell in you richly richly. You see, the deeper God's Word is in us, let it dwell in us richly, the deeper it is, the quicker we will be able to respond to what God says about life and about us. You see, the thing is, the Bible is full. It's packed full of all sorts of truths about life, about relationships with people, about relationship with God, about how we view ourselves, about how to view other people. It has all the stuff that's packed full. And what we want to do is have that Word of God dwell in us richly. I love the word that Paul uses when he says richly. In the Greek, it's the word plus, um, uh, plusios. And it's this idea, and it's translated here as richly, because it carries with it a context about money. And actually, that was the same word that Jesus used to refer to wealthy people. Joseph of Arimathea, if you know his story, he's, uh, he, Jesus was buried in his tomb. It talks about him being a man of great wealth or using this word of rich. 
uh, talks about, Jesus would tell stories about people who are rich. And the reason he uses this, Paul uses this kind of metaphor or this description is because someone who is wealthy, their wealth overflows into everything that they have. It flows out into all that they are. It's this idea of an overflowing or abundant wealth. And so he says, let the word of God dwell in you richly so that it overflows. When we talk about making decisions, when we talk about life, what we want is we want the word of God to be so deep in our heart that it overflows into every decision that we make. In the same way, a New Yorker, he knows the subway system and it overflows into how he makes transportation decisions. But we want that to overflow into our lives, in every area of our lives. This is how uh, the psalmist put it. This is Psalm 119, verse 11. And by the way, we're doing 316 verses, and this is not 316. However, if you add 1 plus 1 plus 9 plus 1 plus 1, it equals 13. So I can do this one, right? And there is no Psalm 316. So there we go. But here's the thing. It says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That your word is so deep in my heart that I won't sin against you. It will affect who I am and how I think about life. So this morning, I'm going to challenge you to do something. I'm going to encourage you to do something. I'm going to challenge you to do something. And I'm going to challenge you to pick some verses from God's word and to memorize them so that you can hide God's word in your heart so that the word of God will dwell in you richly. I'm going to challenge you to memorize some verses. Now, as I say that, some of you are thinking, I need some verses to memorize because I made, you made the subway mistake three times. Like I made the same mistake over and over and over and over again, and I got to figure out a way to make better decisions with this. And some of you are here this morning, and you've been following God for a long time, and you need a bit of a challenge. You need a bit of a boost to say, I need to go further in my walk with God. And memorizing verses may be just what you need to take that next step of further with God. But I also know that there's probably some of you who are sitting here going, you know what, Bible memory, that's just not my thing. I have a bad memory. It's hard for me. I I don't like it. Or maybe you have some stuff from your past where you're like, you know, Bible memory was just all about getting stickers and, and suckers or name on the board, and it didn't really do anything. If I didn't do it exactly right, I kind of got in trouble. Or if I didn't say, you know, where the verse was from before and after I said the verse, then I didn't do it quite right, and I have supposed to be word perfect. And you just have a, a negative kind of view of that. You know, I had that sort of view um, for the early part of my walk with God. I had some bad experiences with memorizing the Bible. It just felt like I had to do it. I was told to do it. And I was just sort of verses that I memorized that didn't seem to intersect with my life. Um, and so my second year on Young Life staff, uh, I went to a training group in Columbus, Ohio. I drove from Cleveland to Columbus. There was about 10 of us in this group. And so we met with the guy that was going to be our trainer this year, a guy named Rob Crocker, still a good friend of mine. So we met with him. And he said to all 10 of us, he said, what we're going to do as part of this training is you're going to memorize two verses for every time that we meet. And so we met about every other week. And so he said, you're going to memorize two verses for every time that we meet. And I said, and I was a bit outspoken back then. I guess I'm sometimes outspoken now. I said, I don't want to do it. I think that's dumb, right? Not a great thing to say to your trainer, but I'm like, I don't know if I use the word dumb, but I said, 
I, I don't want to do that because I feel like it has no connection to him. I memorize these verses and then they just kind of fall out of my brain. So I don't want to do that. And so it was interesting. We had a discussion with the 10 people in this training group and, and the leader and with Rob and everybody else in the group like immediately said, no, let's do it. Let's do it. We're supposed to memorize the Bible. We're supposed to. It's good. It's helpful. And, but I really wrestled with it because I did not want to do it. And so, uh, but because I was in training, it was part of what I had to do. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. But I, ne- I needed to figure out how do I make this Bible memorization assignment that I didn't like particularly work for me? And at this point in my life, I've been walking with God, walking with Christ for, I don't know, probably six, seven years, something like that, maybe a little bit longer. But I had already begun to journal in terms of my walk with God. And so I would read the Bible and I would journal and I would write and I would reflect on it. And so what I decided to do is I took the verse that we're supposed to memorize and I read it in context, I, you know, read in, within the chapter, and I would take a day or two and just meditate on it and understand it and dig into it and, and see every part of it. And then I would work that into actually memorizing the verse and it went deep in my heart. Now, we get to the end of the semester, or excuse me, the end of the year is a nine-month training. We get to the end and... You're supposed to memorize, you're supposed to repeat all the verses that we have memorized up until this point in time. And out of our group of 10, only one person memorized all the verses and repeated them on the last day. Do you want to guess who that was? It was me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing I don't say that to brag, but I say that for this reason is I was the only one who really wrestled with memorizing the Bible. And because I wrestled with it, everybody else was like, well, you have to do it. You should do it. I don't think they put the wrestling behind it that I did. And as a result, I was able to do this. And most of those verses I still have memorized to this day. And so what I want you to do, what I want to do for you over the next about 10 minutes or so, is I want to equip you to look for verses from the Bible that you can memorize, that are going to speak to your heart, to speak to where you are in your walk with God. And so you know, part of this is the assumption that you are reading God's Word on your own at a regular, you know, getting an input of God's Word. Um, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. It says, All Scripture is, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, first of all, I want you to highlight this where it says, breathed out by God. So when you take out your Bible, understand that your Bible, this is God's word to you. This is not Paul's opinion or John's opinion or Isaiah's opinion or David the psalmist's opinion. This is God's word. It is breathed out to you. It is the truth that we are looking for because we've said the depth of truth determines the speed of obedience. And then it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, and that gives a number of words. It says it's profitable for teaching. And so as you read God's Word, you will see that God's Word will teach you about a whole variety of things. It'll teach you about yourself. It'll teach you about relationships. It'll teach you about the character of God Himself. And so as you're doing that, look for what it is teaching to you and where you are in life. For example, let's say you're reading along, you come to Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. That's Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. So you, let's say you commit that to memory, and then the next day or sometime in the future, 
Just things go awry in your life. Your boss gives you more work than you can handle. Your kid breaks his arm. You get some kind of financial problem, a bill that you didn't expect. Whatever it is, you're going, ah, life is out of control. And then you realize the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. He's going to take me to a place where I can drink. He takes me to grassy places where I can be nurtured. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And that's in your heart, and you recognize God is going to give me everything that I need. Even though my life is falling apart, even though things are going crazy, God's going to give me what I need because it's deep in your heart. The Word of God is dwelling in you richly. Next little phrase, it says, for it's helpful, useful, profitable for reproof and correction. Now, I don't use the word reproof very often. It, it, another word, it uses the word rebuke or to tell somebody what's, what is wrong. So the Word of God tells us what is wrong. It reproves us, and then it corrects us. And those seem kind of similar, but there's a little bit of a difference. And here's the difference between reproof and correction, um, is reproof tells us what's wrong. Correction tells us how to do what is right. And the best way that I can kind of think to compare this is it's sort of middle schoolish, right? Uh, but reproof would be to say, don't pick your nose in public, right? Correction would be, say, use a tissue or go in the bathroom and pick your nose or whatever that would be, right? So it's what you're doing wrong and then how to do it right. And God gives us this all through the Bible. It's what you look for. I'll give you an example. Let's say you struggle with lust. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 28, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. So that's what not to do. Don't lust. Okay, well, what's the solution? What should I do? 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. So it's a don't lust and a do flee, rebuke or reproof and correct. The last phrase of 2 Timothy 3.16 says, training in righteousness. As you read God's Word, it's filled with all kinds of things, all kinds of wisdom, all kinds of instructions about this is how you live righteously. Give me an example. Let's say you're reading, you come to John 15, 13. It says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And if that truth is deep in you, imagine your relationships. That You come in conflict with somebody, you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lay down my life for you. In your work relationships, in your family relationships, you say, I'm going to lay down my life for you because you are my friend, because I do care for you. That's an example of how it leads us to this training in righteousness. So along the way, I have dropped a couple of different verses that maybe you'd want to memorize. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you in our last remaining minutes, I'm going to give you seven different verses. And these are verses that I think, uh, or these are areas of life that I think are the major struggles for a lot of people. And so if you struggle with this particular area, then jot the verse down and then commit it to memory. So the first one is from uh, is marriage, and it's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And it says this. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That verse has been the theme verse for Stacy and I 
for the 26 years of our marriage. And we have a great marriage, a happy marriage, but I think it, become, it comes because that truth is deep within both of our hearts. That we both say, I'm going to do what's best for you. I'm going to love you and serve you and put your needs ahead of my own. And she does the same for me. And that verse has become the root kind of foundation of our marriage. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. How about this? Does anybody ever struggle with worry or anxiety? Does that ever stress? Does that ever come up with anybody? So worry or anxiety, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, and when I was memorizing, I would memorize it as the pizza God. So the pizza God or the peace of God will transcend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition. And so whenever you come across something that is causing you anxiety, bring that verse to mind and replace anxiety with prayer. There was a season in my life where I quoted this two, three, four times a day. We were trying to sell our house in Cleveland and move into Morgantown. We were already in Morgantown, but our house hadn't sold. And every time I would see a for sale sign in anybody's yard, I would have this stress that would rise up because we couldn't sell our house. We were living in somebody else's basement. The stress would come up, and I would always quote that. Do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition. God, would you sell our house in Cleveland? And God answered that in an amazing way. I'll share that in a different time. But it's just neat when that word of God is in us richly. Uh, here's another one. If lust is a, something that you start with, or I would kind of broaden this to temptation. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But when you are tempted, God will provide a way out from under it. So when you're tempted, recognize I'm being tempted and say, how is God going to get me out of this temptation? What is the exit route for this temptation? Does anybody struggle with relationships, having peace in relationships? Romans 12, 18 says this, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So far as it depends on you, if that is in you and you're in conflict with somebody and that is right in your heart, you go, you know what? I just need to do my part to live at peace with you and let you do what you want with that. And that will bring you peace in those relationships because that is deep within our hearts. Financial struggle. If you struggle over making financial decisions or debt or those kinds of things, Proverbs 22.7 says this, the borrower is slave to the lender. Just that simple phrase, the borrower is slave to the lender. And if you would remember that, if that was within your heart, within your mind, if that dwelled within you, every time you make a major financial decision, or even a minor one, that that would come up. So before you sign that mortgage that's going to give you this long-term mortgage, before you sign for a phone contract, before you take out a lease on a car payment, before you finance this or, or redo a debt or whatever it is, remember the borrower's slave to the lender. Here's the sixth one. Does anybody struggle with parenting? Anybody at all? Yeah. The only people that don't struggle with parenting are those people that don't have kids, right? Right. I, I, I was the best parent, and then I actually had kids, and I realized I was not, right? And if you're a parent, you understand that. Here's a great verse for that. This is uh, Proverbs 22, 6, and it says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and he will not depart from it. So in other words, have the long view of your kids. 
And so every time, if, if that verse is deep in your heart and going through your brain, every time your kids have a problem and you're trying to figure out, what do I do? Your kid smashes goldfish crackers on the rug. Your kid gets a speeding ticket. Your kid comes home from whatever and is drunk. Your kid is on a screen like 16 hours a day. What do I, how do I, what do I deal with that? If that verse comes to mind, train up a child when he is young and he will not depart from it. You go, okay, well, what's my long-term vision for this child? That's going to determine how I deal with him right now in this moment. And then here's the last one, uh, and this is about forgiveness. If you struggle with God forgiving you, memorize Romans 8.1. It says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, There's no condemnation for you. You don't have to worry about, you don't have to have shame hanging over you. You don't have to have guilt hanging over you. You don't have to have unforgiveness from God hanging over you. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Memorize that. Put that in your heart. I've covered seven of them. I may, it may be something like, I really wish I had a verse for this because I'm struggling with this, or this is a constant issue in my life where I'm struggling. If that's you, my name is Matt Santon. Email me at mattsanton at riverridge.org. Send me an email, say, do you have a verse about this that you can recommend that I could memorize? And I would love to help you to find that verse for whatever issue it is in your life. Um, So send me that email. You know, I just want to close with this. All of us have a choice to make, right? We can choose to make the same mistake over and over and over again. Or we can say, you know, I'm going to do something differently. I'm going to put God's word in my heart. I'm going to dwell with God. I'm going to allow God's word to dwell in me richly by memorizing some verses. And then when I come across these situations, these decisions... I'm going to make the decision that God wants me to make because I have his truth in me. Because the depth of truth in us is going to determine the speed of our obedience and getting in line with what it is that God wants us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you that you have these words of challenge and encouragement to us to memorize the Bible, to hide it in our hearts, Lord. Help us to do that. Help us to hide your word in our hearts, so that we can glorify and honor you in everything that we do. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.